Hi, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I'm extremely pleased uh, to uh, to have Darsha Navayas, professor of the Department of Psychology um, and senior provost for faculty affairs, which I think means that she arranges who sleeps with whom, at the University of Notre Dame, uh, ed- editor also the Journal of Moral uh, Education. Uh, so thank you so much for, for taking the time. Uh, we really appreciate it. You're welcome. Now, I've been peppering psychological experts with this question probably for four years or so. And you actually wrote something quite explicit about this that I'd like to ask you uh, about. You you wrote recently, life outcomes for American youth are worsening, especially in comparison to 50 uh, years ago. Because I think the question of whether childhood is getting better or worse seems to me like a highly complex and ambivalent one. Uh, And I was wondering if you could make the case uh, as to how in general it's getting worse for kids in America these days. Well, I base my my conclusion on people's reports uh, that are looking back 50 years, and that's James Heckman, the Nobel laureate, uh, came out with a report in 2008. And then recently this year, in January, the National Research Council looked at uh, people under age 50 in a comparison of developed nations, and the USA was pretty much at the bottom of 17 nations on all sorts of uh, health outcomes. Uh, Child, uh, early child death, uh, suicide, obesity, drug use, and many diseases. I had Robert Whitaker on the show, uh, I guess about a year ago. You, you may be aware of him. He's, uh, he wrote Anatomy of an Epidemic. Uh, because, of course, in terms of mental health outcomes for American youth, given the amount of medication that's currently being plied on them, sort of uh, the SSRIs and, and psychotropic meds, it seems odd that their mental health would be getting worse I mean, I know it's not causal, but the degree to which the medication use is, is increasing. Do you think there's any correlation, as he points out, to that? I don't, I'm not a psychiatrist or a drug uh, expert, so I can't really speak to that, except I know uh, that sometimes the medicines make you worse. They don't work over time. There's some new, newer uh, papers on that. Right, right. But it's not right, a surprise right. if you understand that babies need... And young children need certain types of environments to thrive, and that uh, if they don't have these environments in early life, their whole health and their mental health, physical health is affected for a lifetime, unless unless you give them drugs to try to reme- re- remediate it. Right. Now, you've talked about that. I've talked about that a little bit on the show. Of course, I'm no particular expert, but this epigenetics that people, when I was growing up, it was like, well, it's genes or environment. Uh, and the interrelationship between genes and environment was not, I don't think it was even explicated back, I don't know, 30 years ago or whatever. But now I think you've made the case and others have made the case that simple things like holding uh, your baby, breastfeeding your baby, carrying your baby uh, actually is, is turning on and off uh, hundreds of different genes which have a significant effect on personality, growth, intelligence and so on. I wonder if you could delve into that a little bit, the degree to which we are literally potters shaping the personalities of our babies. That's right. Uh, the epigenetics is just a whole universe of information and knowledge that we're starting to uncover. Michael Meany is the most well-known researcher in this area. He's been uh, doing this for 20 years, looking at rat babies and their either high or low-nurturing mothers. And if you have a low-nurturing mother in the first 10 days of life, uh, certain genes don't get turned on that control anxiety for the rest of your life. And it's too bad. You're out of luck unless they give you a drug later. Uh, but that's only one of hundreds of genes that are affected by caregiving. But the drug, and, uh, would only mask, 
the drug would only mask the symptoms. Yeah. Of course, there's no reactivation right. of deactivated uh, genetics, right? That's right. At least that, as far as we know. Although, you know, the people like to say the brain is plastic, and it is to some degree, but there's certain thresholds and kind of uh, parameters of systems that get set in early life, and we don't know exactly which ones can be changed and which ones you can't change later on. So it's all kind of a mystery, and um, <clears throat> my argument is if we just pay attention to what we evolved to need, and we can know that by looking at mammals in general, social mammals in particular, and then human uh, societies that really operate the way that um, most of our genus history has lived, and they live in those kinds of societies, and look at what they do. And they, they behave very differently towards their babies than we do. Uh, at least in the USA now, uh, we've sort of forgotten uh, what babies need and sort of, I, in my view, treat babies like plants, you know, maybe water them once in a while, you know, stick them on this shelf over there in this little carrier. And, you know, as long as, you know, pat them on the head once in a while, it's sort of what John Watson, the behaviorist psychologist uh, said in 1928, we're still, we still have that mindset or it's coming back and it, it you know, it's not everybody, but there's uh, too many people, I think, who think like that about babies. Right. Now, something you also wrote that I thought was really fascinating was you wrote, instead of being held, infants spend much more time in carriers, car seats, and strollers than they did in the past. I, I, I was just at the mall today with my daughter, and uh, she's, she's four, and she's always up in my arms. She always wants to be held and carried. And we went, Lucky. I was just, yeah, having, having, and just, she was that since she was a baby. She not only wanted to be carried, but walked around. She didn't even like to sort of be held in a lap. She always wanted something new to see. But um, I couldn't see any other parents. They're all the parents had car seats or, or they, sorry, they were in strollers. They have these little sort of fire engine strollers to carry kids around in the mall. And I was really struck by, by what you said. Of course, we think that they're sort of, in a sense, being held or contained when they're in car seats, carriers, and strollers. But it's the physical touch that they need much more than that, if, if I understand what That's you're saying. Right. Yes, we have uh, research that shows that mammals actually – when mammal babies are separated from the mother, it's usually the mother that's tested um, because that's usually who cares for other mammal babies, but in humans it's many adults. Uh, but when the mother's separated from the, the offspring, all sorts of systems start to get dysregulated. DNA synthesis stops, growth hormone stops functioning or slows down, uh, respiration starts to get disorganized, cardiac, uh, all sorts of things that you makes you realize that it's not crazy for moms and dads to sleep near their their young infants because they need help regulating themselves. They need help to learn how to live in this world after, you know, nine months in the womb, which was much cushier. Yeah, one of the greatest things that we learned, uh, my wife and I learned before becoming parents, was to recognize that the the infant and the parents are a system, a combined system. Uh, I don't even know what you'd, you'd call it, some sort of Borg mutual parasitical nonsense, but but they're not a separate entity. They're, their entire internal systems are heavily regulated by what we as parents do. Uh, and yeah. that has, I think, kind of new. Like you, you, you sort of got this idea that like you got this baby and as long as you didn't do terrible things and the baby was the baby was, and it was going to be the way that grows up, like we got this sort of fixed thing. Uh, but it seems that, you know, what we sort of understood in, in doing our research, and I was lucky enough to have, um, you know, great people like Alison Gopnik on the show to press them with questions. Uh, 
and this idea that, that the babies and uh, and moms in particular are uh, a unit, a sort of biological unit, that just because they've left the womb doesn't mean that the regulation needs to cease. And we're still continuing to in- incredibly and intensely affect the child's development uh, uh, through simple things like touch or non-touch, eye contact or non-eye contact, a soothing voice versus a raised voice, peace versus stress. Uh, I don't think people understand the degree to which we put ripples in that, that never go away into these ponds. Yeah, that's right. And it's important to understand, too, that we're born very early because of human evolution, uh, the bipedalism allowing us to walk on two legs. The pelvis had to shrink and babies had to be born earlier because the heads would otherwise be too big and they wouldn't be born. Um, Probably women died from having babies with heads that were too big way back, too. Um, But we're born really at full term birth with only 25 percent of the brain intact at, at adult size. And 90% gets finished by age five, 80% by age three. This is on average. Uh, and so all the, well, some people argue that we're born nine months early in terms of mobility and being able to move around uh, compared to other animals. Other people say it's 18 months early because of the way the bones aren't quite finished. Uh, so really, in those nine to 18 months after birth, we should be providing and this is Ashley Montague's idea, an external womb, mm. Ex- exterogestation, he calls it. Uh, and that means providing a caring, comforting environment with little distress, because that distress in those early years sets up uh, stress-reactive systems. It, it uh, misdevelops um, the HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal gland axis that can as we said earlier, epigenetics have effect on anxiety uh, control, but also the vagus nerve, which is related to all sorts of, well, all aspects of your body. If that doesn't get set properly as an adult, you can have seizures, you can have irritable bowel, you can have breathing problems, heart problems. The vagus nerve is uh, needs those parents to keep the baby calm as it's setting its thresholds and its uh, parameters for function. It even affects how you um, socialize. If it doesn't get set properly, you're going to be less um, able to have intimate relations. And actually, it's also related to morality. So people who have compassion, who feel compassion, their vagus nerve is operating well. Right. And I'm really being fascinated by the development of empathy, Um, it seems like such an obvious thing, put yourself in other people's shoes, try and understand other people. But it seems to be this very, I think it was a recent um, uh, a writer I was reading who said it's like 12 or 13 complicated brain systems that are required for the development and expression of empathy. And, you know, I guess we can go either way to empathy or non-empathy depending on how we're treated. Um, is empathy a complicated thing to develop? Does it simply require sort of eye contact and back and forth? Or, or cause I mean, he argued that it's the greatest human resource that we need in the world. You know, we think we need, you know, oil or, or energy or empathy, I think. And I think it's a really good case. Empathy is really the primary resource we need. What are the key factors in helping people, um, to, to help their children or help their babies really, I think, develop uh, empathy? Well, I think Adam Smith would, would agree with you. Uh, empathy is important for all economic functions or the the functions of a society. We can't really get along well uh, cooperative, cooperatively um, without it. Uh, so our work is looking at um, the effects of a set of parenting practices, what we call the evolved developmental niche. 
So it's sort of the nest that uh, we evolved to provide for children uh, because they're so needy when they're born, humans are. Uh, and these practices then have been identified among the hunter-gatherer communities that represent 99% of our history. What we do is we ask moms about these practices, and then we look at three-year-olds and three- to five-year-olds' empathy development. And the ones that we're looking at are breastfeeding. So our evolved needs are from two to five years of breast milk. On average, weaning among hunter-gatherers is age four. Now you think, wow, why do you need so much breast milk? Well, it turns out that it has all the building blocks for the immune system, and the immune system really isn't done till about age five. It's around the time, age five, six, when the first adult molar comes in, and that's a signal. That's a cognitive shift uh, um, of development as well at that time. So breast milk, we're finding that that matters. Having breastfed, uh, been breastfed at all matters. Breastfeeding length matters for empathy. Uh, touch, so how much a mother is touching the child or says they positively touch them. Negative touch is bad. Positive touch is good. So uh, no spanking, but lots of affection. Responsiveness to the child. We know we've got a lot of decades of research on responsiveness to the needs of the child and how that's related to conscience development and empathy and self-regulation. And our work is showing the similar um, findings there. We usually control for responsiveness because we already know that works. Does these other things matter too is what we ask. Another one is play, free play, and uh, best in nature outside without um, toys even, just climbing around trees and, and things. Um, and then lots of social support for the mother, for the child and mother dyad, and then natural childbirth too. We look at the effects of C-sections and find that that has an effect on empathy as well. Oh, so C-sections can have an effect on empathy, even controlling for other variables. Is that right? That's astonishing. Yeah. Wow. Now, um, since we are in the realm of, of, of morality and ethics, or at least that's part of your specialty, um, you've, you've obviously, I'm sure you've heard of the, the, um, the marshmallow test. You, know, you, you give to kids a couple of years old the choice. So you, have a, you can have one marshmallow now, but if you wait 10 minutes, you can have two marshmallows. And of course, those who sort of take the two generally have been found to do better in life and so on. And this idea that, that of course, we have impulses and we have only a second or two to intercept impulses from the amygdala, uh, the sort of fight-or-flight base of the brain, from the prefrontal cortex. Whatever strengthens the capacity of the prefrontal cortex, the sort of front, I would say, you know, the seat of, of reason and, and of self-control and, and um, uh, the deferral of gratification, anything which strengthens that um, regulation of the amygdala seems, I think, would be contributing positively to, to world peace and uh, a lack of criminality and perhaps even empathy as well. And I know that they've done some work. I think you've quoted some of the work that's been done to help uh, children to strengthen uh, self-control, impulse control. We don't want to eliminate impulses because there's a lot of creativity and, and spontaneity that comes out of those. But self-regulation seems to me to be very key uh, in the development. And what are the things that parents can do to really help that uh, process move forward? Well, Alan Shore has pointed to uh, this extensively in several books of his. Uh, he's a clinical um, psychiatrist from UCLA. And he uh, describes how important it is those first couple years of life, especially the first two years or so, uh, in establishing prefrontal control or over subcortical um, impulses. And a lot of what's happening in that time period is the right brain is developing rapidly. It has a spurt at that time. And there's several systems that are lateralized to the right brain control, so the vagus nerve that I mentioned earlier. 
<clears throat> is one of those. Um, and there's others, too. So, again, it's these parenting practices in those first two years of life. Just uh, keep your baby calm. Keep the baby with you. Uh, preferably give them breast milk exclusively for at least six months. Uh, and that will, because if you give them formula, um, the other thing we haven't mentioned is um, the immune system is mostly in the gut. 90% of your immune system, some people say, is there. And breast milk provides all the, the food for good bacteria to live there. Formula tends to give you a, a different and more pathological balance of, of uh, bacteria there, which affects your health, apparently, for the rest of your life. So they've, they're doing studies now of fecal um, transplants to help people who have the wrong kind of um, fecal matter in their gut. And they, they've done this in rats or mice uh, as well, and they're with a, a, a set of mice that are very aggressive versus a very pacifistic mice um, strain and they switch the gut bacteria and the personality shift. So I think we have to pay attention in the 21st century to the microbiome uh, and the, uh, uh, all the bacteria that are really keeping us alive. Only 10% uh, 10, 10 of the genes that we carry in our bodies are human genes. The rest are all these creatures that are keeping us going. Could you just explain that I'm last wondering. bit? I want to make sure I, I follow that uh, fully. Uh, I'm I'm still I'm still pondering fecal transplants. I, I I'm gonna have to look that up later. I think that's the very first time this topic has come up on this show, and I, I must really congratulate you for that. We've we've crossed a new a new threshold uh, of colostomy bag lobbying or whatever it is that the, however it is that they do that. But what was the last thing you said? The, the other the other creatures that keep us alive. You mean that the sort of the bacteria in our gut and and all that kind of stuff. Yes, and on our bodies and on your eyelashes, all the the creatures that are are genetically on us, in us, that rely on us to stay alive or ke are keeping us alive. It's a, you know, we're a cooperative community, each of us. Right. Yeah. We think of ourselves as an eye, but we're actually quite an ecosystem. Now, yes, we are. it has sort of struck me that, that it, one of the things that's, that seems kind of tragic uh, is that uh, kids who are put into daycare usually don't, obviously, are not breastfed because they're in daycare all day. And daycare, of course, is, is like this medieval germ pit. You know, like one of my neighbors is terrible. Every time his kid goes back into daycare, he's like sick for the weekend kind of thing because they come home with some, you know, truly Stone Age pathogen. Uh, and so the kids who have <laughs> weakened immune systems from uh, not being breastfed are put into these bio pits of, you know, <laughs> tubercular hell. Uh, and it seems that that level of illness being exposed to kids or kids being exposed to that level of illness um, when their immune systems are compromised by a lack of breastfeeding, I think could could do nothing but produce long-term problems and certainly, I think, ends up with a wild over-prescription over of antibiotics and other things like that. Well, does that seem to make any sense yeah. to you? That makes sense to me. I can't say too much about it, but uh, I agree with you. Now, if, I mean, you, of course, living in the United States are at sort of ground zero for problematic infancies. At least if you look at sort of government policies, uh, it's kind of a truism, mm -hmm. but but still important, I think, which is that, you know, over in Europe and particularly in, in Northern Europe, uh, in, in Scandinavia and Denmark and so on, they have these luxurious uh, um, uh, maternity leave benefits and so on go on for a couple of years and, and that they really do encourage. And, and I think Sweden was the first country, I think, in the 70s to outlaw spanking. And uh, there is this um, gentleness towards children that comes uh, out of uh, Europe. 
Whereas in America, I don't know, it's, it's hard to imagine. Um, I don't know if they view them as just, you know, small soldiers in training or something like that. But, you know, the six weeks of maternity leave, then, you know, get thee back to work and, you know, uh, email them some milk in a bag or something. It just seems, why do you think in America it's so different than it is in Europe in terms of how uh, infancy is viewed? Well, we've got the pioneering spirit here, every man for himself, uh, literally. Uh, and I think that long heritage of mistrust of government, of do-it-yourself, um, is sort of in, infused into the bones of the Americans. Uh, so it's, and then this communist scare and everything that socialist is labeled communist and anything about the common good these days is bad mouth. So there's a whole host of um, factors, I think. Uh, we do have our government, though, now pressing uh, hospitals in, uh, to become more breastfeeding friendly. They call that baby friendly in, in the World Health Organization. In 2011, our government uh, put out a report and, and said that only 4% of U.S. hospitals are baby friendly, breastfeeding friendly. And that last year, uh, it, well, 2012, it went up to 6%. So there was some progress. But it is quite a shock that uh, Sweden changed all their hospitals to be baby-friendly in the 90s when the WHO um, suggested it. But the U.S. is now just finally thinking about it. What does baby-friendly mean? I mean, is it the information? Is it the environment? I guess both, right? The information plus the environment. But what specifically was the World Health Organization suggesting? Right. There's 10 steps that hospitals need to take for to be certified as baby-friendly. And so there's hospitals all over the country who are trying to do that now, which is great news. Uh, but it includes uh, things like not giving babies formula for no medical reason, which 80% of hospitals were doing in 2011, at least according to that report. It also means not to giving them pacifiers, not separating the mother and baby. It's especially important that first hour after birth is when a lot of the bonding occurs and the breastfeeding success relies on um, that interaction at that time. So those kinds of practices. Right, right. One of the things I think that, that has not been successfully communicated to, to a lot of parents, um, you know, I'm obviously not pointing specifically at you, but uh, one of the things I think that's not been successfully communicated is this early investment. Um, there's a, a heartbreaking story that one psychologist related who was in charge of sort of the, the criminally, um, the real criminals, you know, hardcore criminals, and, you know, their parents would come to visit them like every weekend and so on, and he'd always think to himself, you have time now to come and visit every. Why didn't you have time when they were babies to treat them in the right way, to take your time off? And I always make the case to parents, like I'm a stay-at-home dad, and I say, well, look, I mean, you took time off for college, didn't you? And, and that paid off. And if you take a couple of years off when your kids are babies, it pays off. You know, parenting is really like pay me now or pay me a lot more uh, later. I mean, mm -hmm. it, and it seems there's good scientific case, as a really great scientific case, to be made for this this investment for the first couple of years. Uh, how, how would you make the case if you had a, a megaphone to speak to all the parents to be in the world? Well, I, I would uh, remind them how needy babies are at birth and that they, they're building a brain. If it's only 25% constructed at birth, then what the parent is doing is pretty much building the rest. Uh, and so whatever they do or don't do is going to affect the personality and health and well-being of that child for their life. I think in this country, in the States, um, there's a lot of pressure on parents 
to not give in to babies. There's a belief that you can spoil a baby, so you want to control them from the beginning. Um, so it's uh, it's a power struggle, and and that's unfortunately even medical personnel recommend uh, things like crying it out, you know, sleep training to little babies. I get emails all the time from parents who are following advice from from their friends or from specialists, um, sleep clinics even, saying, oh, yes, go ahead and, and sleep train your six-week-old baby because you have to go to back, back to work anyway. Uh, and so they're ha- having these horrible nights and desperately emailing, saying, oh, I don't know what to do. The baby's been crying for three hours. They told me to put it in the laundry room so I wouldn't hear the baby cry, mm. but I can't take it anymore. What do I do? So it's just horrible uh, what's happening. Um, the culture is, there's a lot of pressure. And I hate to say this, but uh, it seems that um, some of the professionals uh, who are women, um, probably maybe, maybe men too, but I find it more among women, don't want to hear that, that they should have you know, breastfed their babies or that breastfeeding is better than formula uh, or that you know they should be sleeping with the baby in the same room at least or... All these different practices that really help babies that we know in the medical field really help. Uh, people don't really want to hear it. So the, the challenge, though, you're, you're, the gauntlet is down. What do we do for, how do we lure parents in to really realizing uh, that these things are important? And I think part of it is um, starting with the young people, uh, developing uh, interventions in secondary schools and colleges. And I, what I have my students do is they read the Science of Parenting book or the continuum concept. These are really great books to get an idea of what's going on. Uh, the continuum concept is a, an anthropological kind of um, personal story of a woman who stayed with uh, an Amazonian, uh, Amazonian tribe and realized that everything she had learned about parenting from the States was kind of wrong. And the science of parenting is about the science of it with lots of helpful tips about what to do with tantrums and things like that. So. I think we have to keep chipping away at the um, kind of culture of, of me first among some parents. Uh, it seems that, uh, I don't know, there, it, there's so many different issues. I guess that's one of them, but there's, there's a lot more. Well, there is this belief, <laughs> there's this terrible belief that, you know, I had some friends who were thinking about having a baby. They said, you know, I really hope that a baby fits in with my lifestyle. And <laughs> I'm like, I think you may not understand what parenting is all about. The baby becomes the sun at the center of the universe, and you rotate around the baby, at least for the first couple of years. So to me, that would be like saying, well, I, I'm a single guy. I really like to go out to bars to pick up women. I want to get married, but I really hope that marriage doesn't interfere with my lifestyle. It's like, I hope that it does, because you have to change your priorities when that happens. But it is kind of tough. And the other thing, too, with Americans, the, 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 not just Americans, but um, this idea that that, that children are... You now babies are, are vaguely bad. You know, we, we ascribe all these moral qualities to babies, like they're mean or selfish or or, or greedy or or whatever. And it's like, ah, and of course they're not. They're just doing what they're supposed to be doing. And they're actually trying to communicate with parents all the time about how to best serve their needs, which we hope serves the parents' needs since they should be one and the same. But of course, if this idea that, that, that babies were, were like enemies, infiltrators that need to be broken and molded to whatever is convenient to the parents. If that really works, then Americans should have, you know, the most self-restraint and the most high ethics. There should be no empire. There should be no obesity. There should be no extravagant criminality and <clears throat> all of these things. It's like the empiricism of adulthood never impacts upon the, the, the theories of babyhood. Sorry for the rant, but uh, it just gets a, it gets a little frustrating. 
Sorry, go ahead. Yes, I agree. We still have uh, the behaviorist, uh, and there are many behaviorist uh, advisors still saying you've got to condition the baby to not need you, in a sense, uh, to sleep alone, to um, not cry out when they want something, and, and that's a good thing. John Watson, the, uh, the head of the American Psychological Association, wrote his book on parenting in 1928, was published, and he said, you know, don't hug your children. You might spoil them, pat them on the head once in a while, shake their hand when they go to bed. And that idea of being so detached from babies, it, it came in in part because of the fear of germs and all the hospitals that were, uh, they started just because of so many kids dying in hospitals, they decided it was germ caused rather than isolation, caused from isolation from not being touched or, or given affection. But they thought it was germs. And, and so then the psychologist kind of jumped on that wagon. Yes, we're going to be a science now and, you know, fo follow these rules of conditioning uh, as if, you know, people are r rats but or plants again. So total different uh, misunderstanding of human nature, of, of how humans develop and how important those early years are for what kind of nature you develop as a person. Yeah, this this tabula rasa idea. I think that this idea that 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 babies are born like clay, and clay doesn't care if you mold it into an ashtray or a pot or a cup or whatever. This idea you just mold yeah. it into your local cultural, your local preferences, uh, and the clay doesn't care. That it's blank slate. But of course, now I think we understand that babies are born with very specific and very important needs that are universal. Uh, and this idea that we can take this Prussian-based toilet train them at gunpoint approach to children and think that we can somehow end up with healthy functioning adults, mm -hmm. I hope, is beginning to go. Uh, to go by the wayside now. One of the things that uh, you've... Europe's ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Europe is ahead of us on that. Right, right. And there are some uh, strong indicators. Um, uh, I'm very much uh, a fan of Lloyd DeMoss, who's on, been on the show for uh, a couple of times as well. He runs psychohistory.com. He's written a book that I'm reading as an audiobook called The Origins of War and Child Abuse. And he points out, as has Robin grill in parenting for a peaceful world that the countries that are most gentle on their children tend to be the least interested or involved in wars and um, uh, it's actually quite geographically specific like the majority of uh, American soldiers come from the south and the south has the highest prevalence of spanking and also hitting children in school which is still legal in like 23 US states most of which are uh, in the south so there is this this uh, shadow of early aggression towards uh, babies and toddlers that casts its very very long shadow uh, in the um, in the world stage, uh, in in the most horrible uh, and fatal of human conflicts and human addictions of war and violence, uh, so you know it, the hand that rocks the cradle truly does um, rule the world and certainly rules the kind of evils that are so prevalent uh, among adults. Uh, they have very, I think, they have very early roots, and the, the more aggressive and demonic the adult personality, it would seem to me, the more uh, repressed and abused was the infancy, uh, and so it really does. It's a huge thing to change, but it really, I think. This early childhood stuff has the greatest uh, capacity or possibility or potential to rid us of some of the a most ancient afflictions of the species. I agree with you. And I, my theory of moral development is that we, we have three propensities um, based on our evolved brain strata that Paul McLean identified. Uh, he called the, the oldest one the reptilian brain, although that gives reptiles a bad name, I think. Uh, but it's the survival <laughs> systems... Uh, it's those things that keep us alive, right? So it's the anger and fear and freezing and so fight, flight, freeze, faint, uh, those things um, that we're born with, essentially, but they get conditioned by early life. 
And then we have the, the next brain strata is the, what he calls the paleomammalian, which is the mammalian uh, feature. Some of these things we share with uh, birds, too, but uh, it's the, the emotions of care and, and play. And then the third strata is the neomammalian. So those are the, the frontal lobe. And for humans, the prefrontal cortex, especially in those executive functions that we were talking about. And my theory is that if you don't get the good care in early life, you're going to have a tendency to flip into your, your uh, what I call the safety ethic. When you approach others and when you make moral decisions in social situations, you'll be more stress reactive, and then that, that will take energy away from your other systems. And uh, in the moment it does that, but you will habitually do that if you uh, don't have good care in early life because you've, you've ramped up the power of these systems and you've neglected the right brain development that helps you control those systems. And then you've neglected also those uh, caring and love, all those things. I have to look at that article you mentioned on all the different components of empathy. Uh, all those things are fostered by that loving care and that comfort and that, you know, just being present with the baby and being, um, you know, intersubjectively playing and interacting and creating narratives together. These things are really important for compassionate morality. Mm. And I call that second system engagement ethic. So if you're, so what happens with the way we're raising kids now is it makes it really hard to be here and now fully attentive to what you're doing and who you're with. Because you need all that stuff from early life to be set up properly. Uh, and so instead, I think I see more and more students that are much, they're coming in with this little shield up and they act that way and they're very kind of closed oriented. They might be really smart and uh, get high test scores. But that's another part that's uh, what I call detached imagination. And IQs in the States are going up now uh, over the 20th century. But if you look at what Flynn, that's called the Flynn effect. And if you look at what Flynn says about it, it's the ability to answer hypothetical questions that's gone up. Well, that, that actually is quite interesting because the hunter-gatherers, uh, when people have studied them and asked them, you know, hypothetical questions, they refuse to answer those questions. Because they, you know, how, should Heinz steal a drug to save the life of his wife? Heinz? I don't know Heinz. Do you know Heinz? What should I, how should I know what Heinz should do? You know, so they, they refuse to, you know, play those kinds of games. But we're creating kids who are really good at playing those kinds of games and for better or for worse, I mean, there are good things about detached imagination, but you have to also have for human, uh, at least I think human capacities at their fullest, is communal imagination. It's the ability to use your abstract thinking capabilities, reflectiveness, for the benefit of the community. And it's not just, and I use uh, hunter-gatherers as a baseline for our optimal capacities, because these small band hunter-gatherers that have been studied and Fortunately, they're under a lot of stress now, but they they show much more intelligence than we have. They're much more perceptive and hear and see better. Of course, if you had five years of breast milk, we all probably would. Uh, but they also have a sense of communal um, communal self that they're connected to the earth, that they're part of the earth. That there's uh, in the hunter gatherers that have been studied, the more settled ones, they call it a common self. Um, the sense that, you know, that tree has a, is an agent, that mountain is an agent, as well as the goat over there. They're all agents, and we're all agents together. And, and humans are not above the rest, except in terms of their imaginations and keeping things going, keeping the earth alive in various ways, like the Aborigines do, and they 
do their song lines there um, <clears throat> to keep the earth together. Uh, so for me, uh, what we've done now, and it's been happening over centuries, <clears throat> is we've narrowed our morality. We now think that it's uh, human nature is naturally evil and selfish and aggressive, but that's only because that's the way we're raising children. And we've thought, we think that being a, a smart person means you have high reason and, and verbal conscious knowledge of things. But that's just a little tiny piece of what our hunter-gatherer cousins know. They know so much more. They have much more sense of these other realms that we cannot access if you don't have your right brain working all that well. Uh, Ian McGilchrist has a great book. You should talk to him. Maybe you have already. It's the, the master and his emissary, he calls it, because in the story, the master sends his emissary out to see how the kingdom is doing, and the emissary starts to think he's in charge. And he says that's the left brain. The left brain is so, uh, in the Western civilization, has been so uh, hyped up and um, uh, attended to that the, em the master, the right brain, is, is now denigrated, and all that awareness that's much more in the non-scientific realms of knowledge uh, is um, neglected and to our detriment because we're destroying the earth. So that, that's my bigger, biggest concern is that we really, if we don't have this full capacity of, of our morality, um, we're really not going to live very long and we're killing all sorts of other species at the same time. It is, um, I think one of the, there's an old Bible quote that says, he who increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. And it is, of course, a great tragedy yeah. that we are always and forever only about five years away from a perfect world. You know, like if we could just get every single parent in the world for the next five years to do what science says is great for the babies, you know, breastfeed, stay home, uh, uh, caress and, and chat and sing and laugh and be gentle and so on. I know it's a fantasy, but I mean, if five years, just a little five-year slice in the entire 150,000-odd-year lifespan of the species, five years, we could completely turn this planet around. Uh, I know, it's, uh, I but it's it. so close. It's so close, and science tells us exactly what to do. It's like, just wash your hands. You don't get sick. Just treat your babies well, and we got a peaceful world. But anyway, it is so close. The problem is, is we got all these stress-reactive adults, and they can't, their, their yeah. higher-order thinking capacities yeah. and compassion are kind of impaired. Because they're just going, ah, they're so anxious about what's going on. So, And there's epigenetic inheritance effects, too. We don't, yep. we hardly know uh, very much about that. But we know that if, like, a, a mouse is exposed to a poison, for example, I think it's actually BPA plastic, uh, for four generations, at least several generations, the, the offspring are less social. Mm. And we've got all these pollutants we've got in the environment, especially in the States. Uh, at least Europe is trying to control those. Uh, but all these things that are having effects that we hardly know. I wonder if we could just spend the last minute or two uh, on circumcision, which for my European audience <laughs> is something they may not know much at all. But um, uh, in the U.S., uh, it, now the rates are dropping considerably. And it is. I remember reading about how in China in the 19th century, this gruesome practice of foot binding, where you know, curl the women's, the girls, I guess, toes back in towards their heel and basically turn them into hooves. This all ended in like one generation. Nobody could tell exactly why, just something happened. And it seems to be happening with circumcision as well. But whatever, I think whatever we can do to move that process along uh, is fantastic. And of course, you've written about this in your blog. And I'll put the link to the blog uh, in the low bar for the video, video in the notes of the podcast. Um, if you wanted to give a brief case uh, against 
uh, circumcision because there seems to be some mealy mouth stuff coming out of the pediatrics associations um, around things like penile cancer and STDs. Um, and uh, I was wondering if you could just give a brief case to any parents out there who may be uh, pondering this uh, decision. This is a tough one, um, and there's uh, experts. I, I have a set of blog posts on this topic, but they're written mostly by people who know this much better than I do because I think it's really important, but it's not my expertise. But what I can say is that the um, American Academy of Pediatrics put their report out, I believe it was last year, uh, suggesting that infant circumcision is a good thing because it can prevent penile cancer and HIV-AIDS, uh, but there's no evidence that babies get any of those things um, from uh, having their penis intact. And there's also a lot of controversy about the studies that suggest that actually uh, circumcision prevents H HIV AIDS. Uh, a lot of flaws in those studies, and people say they're not accurate. That's the misinterpretation of the data. Uh, and so my argument is that it's an ethical issue. There's no reason to do harm to a body of a child for no medical reason. There's no real medical reason. And even for a religious reason, I think the child should have a choice about it because there's so many side effects from having um, a circumcised penis from being pain-reactive, pain-sensitive, to being pretty much having your sex life kind of wrecked in a way because it doesn't match up with what females prefer typically, and over age, things get worse. Um, and you can read more about those things at the blog post because uh, it's pretty sad. And, and unfortunately, a lot of doctors are ignorant about this. They're ignorant about all sorts of baby care issues as well, and they promote the wrong thing. And we have a post on how doctors often damage the penis, making it necessary to have circumcision um, later. So you want to be careful about how you care for the penis because of the washing. You don't want to really put any soap. You know, there's stuff on the blog post about that. So be careful and let the, if, the, if you think circumcision is important, let the boy decide when he's in his teens, for example. Or preferably after age 21 or maybe 25 after the frontal cortex is finished pretty much. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know too many men in their 20s so who, if you say, hey, you know, let's, without anesthetic, let's remove half the skin of your penis, who would say, yeah, I, I'm down for that. That sounds like a good plan for a Saturday. Um, well, listen, um, I, I obviously, you, you, you know, I really appreciate the information. It's, it's great chatting with you. And I also really wanted to express my appreciation as a layperson for the work that you do to translate the studies into accessible, digestible um, text for, for people like me. It's, it's hugely appreciated. I mean, trying to wade through some of these technical journals can uh, start to make little hieroglyphics dance in front of your eyeballs. So I really appreciate the work that you do to downshift it somewhat to the really you know, reasonably intelligent layperson. Of course, we're going to put links to your books and links to your blog and all that kind of great stuff. And uh, I'd love to have you back on again to, I mean, as a philosopher, ethical theories are kind of my thing. So uh, I, um, I'd love to have you back on if, if you have time another time. But uh, I really wanted to thank you so much, Dasha, for your time today. It was really, really enjoyable. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking with you, Stefan. Take care. Take care.